This is Cinema Roundtable. My name is Stefan, and I'm here with my usual beau. Hi, Stefan. And as longtime listeners know, we are adding new co-hosts to the program, and so joining our rotating pool of co-hosts on Cinema Roundtable are Jake and Lexi. Hi. Hello there. And uh, here's here's something I'm, I'm sure is worth sharing. Uh, Jake and Lexi are actually a married couple, so that that's a whole new element to the show that we haven't had before. Um, I don't know how big a role that will play in the future, but uh, <laughs> uh, worth, worth noting uh, that most movies that one of them has seen, the other has seen. So... Uh, again, we will be adding Jake and Lexi to the uh, ongoing rotating pool of uh, new co-hosts, along with Jared and Erica, and uh, we'll be we'll be checking out some new people as well as time goes on. But for today, we are here to talk about our feature film, Candyman, the 2021 sequel, as it turns out, to the original 1992 movie. Um, so we're excited to be talking about that. But before we get to our feature film, we are going to talk about some of the other movies that we've seen recently. Uh, and I'm going to start with Bo. If you don't mind, Bo recently saw Shang-Chi. Uh, is it Legend of the Ten Rings? And The Legend of the Ten Rings. And The Legend of the Sequel Ten Rings. Sequel to The Legend of the Nine Rings, it turns out. So <laughs> that was a surprise when I saw this movie. Spoilers. The Lots 1972 Marvel film. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the 1992 <laughs> Marvel film. Does that Shang mean it's, it's canon now? Yes, it is. Yes. Right. Um, so those two sequels that came out in the 90s after that first one, you can just disregard those. But anyway, <laughs> Shang-Chi is, uh, I'll set up the movie. Shang-Chi is a master martial artist um, whose father owns the Ten Rings, uh, which give him immortality and access to this big network of fighters. And Shang-Chi is trained as a boy by his father uh, to be the best fighter he can be. And he's sent off to America as a teenager to complete this mission. And he wants to escape his violent life. So he uh, abandons his violent upbringing. He stays in America. He assumes a new identity. However, his father's Ten Rings organization finds him, and then he's drawn back to his origins and his family. Um, I think this is a very fun and easy-to-watch Marvel film. It's very accessible for both fans of Marvel and newcomers because it doesn't really rely heavily on lore from past films, but it does have some great subtle tie-ins uh, to the universe. Um, this is mostly an entry point to the character of Shang-Chi, though. And of all the origin stories Marvel has explored, um, this one is one of the better ones, in my opinion, because there's a strong family element to the conflict that paints some gray areas. Rather than having this generic, you know, mustache twirling villain, um, <laughs> there's some some great subtlety and nuance here. Um, the main antagonist is Shang-Chi's father, but he's one of the better MCU villains because he's driven by love and he has virtues and he has flaws. His side of the story is told very thoroughly, which I really appreciated. And at times it felt as much a movie about him as Shang-Chi, which I thought was very interesting. The action scenes in this movie are incredible. Simu Liu, who plays Shang-Chi, has some of the rawest physical talent of the Marvel heroes I've seen. Um, there's fight choreography in here that's airtight and impressive. And when you're watching some of these action scenes, you can be very much aware that there's CG going on all around them. There's CG fest. But at the core, 
there's this really impressive hand-to-hand fight choreography that I just I, I was very impressed by. Like I my jaw actually dropped several times watching fight scenes in this movie. And I was so tired of all the fight scenes in other MCU films. So uh, that's a testament to how good it was. Um, but I don't think it's a perfect movie. I think it's incredibly long. It's about two and a half hours. And as always, I wish, you know, they would have cut some out of the middle. The second act kind of drags on a bit. And they do have some third act flair that um, indulges in some tropes that we see in a lot of these kinds of superhero films. So a lot of the same kind of tired ideas that that we've seen at, you know, the big climactic battle in lots of these other films. Um, so a lot of that stuff seemed unnecessary. But overall, this movie has a great villain. Shang-Chi is really fun to watch. He's a humble, gifted hero. Um, and I can't wait to see him uh, alongside other MCU characters. So I had a good time with this movie. If I can ask a question, um, how is the humor in the movie? Because I know Aquafina plays a predominant role in this movie. I know that it's somewhat of a mixed bag sometimes with Marvel movies on how serious the tone is. I mean, you've got things like Winter Soldier, which is pretty much a straight action drama. And you've got things like Guardians of the Galaxy that's basically a comedy movie. Um, is that something that's kind of balanced out in this? Or yeah, That's a great question. Um, yeah, Aquafina brings a great lightness to this film. So um, actually early on, you see um, Shang-Chi. He, he goes by Sean in his American life. That's mm-hmm. that's his name that Aquafina's character knows him by. Um, he's working with her as their valets at, um, I think, a restaurant or a hotel or something. And they're friends. They hang out together. And we see her immediate family. They He visits her family. And there's a lot of lighthearted moments there. Um, her grandma, like, asks her if they're dating and stuff. So um, I'd say there isn't a lot of, like, laugh out loud, hilarious moments. But there is a lot of levity that's that I really appreciated. It's not just action scene after action scene. And I think a lot of that is accomplished by characters like Aquafina's character. Great. So, yeah. Excellent. All right, so that is Shang-Chi, the latest in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, Next, I'm going to throw it to uh, our new co-host, Jake, for Werewolves Within. Fantastic. Um, So Werewolves Within is a horror comedy, um, also a mystery, if you want to throw that into. It's directed, it's a directorial debut from Josh Rubin, who, if anyone is familiar with uh, College Humor, was a predominant figure in College Humor. Um, it stars Sam Richardson and, uh, Milana Weintrup, or as people know her is, uh, what, what is she? Uh, she's from T-Mobile, She's right? the T-Mobile girl. Oh. Yes. Oh. Um, this is a, it's, it's basically, uh, Sam Richardson is a new park ranger who has been assigned to a, a smaller town in the Northeast. And, um, there's a lot of in, there's turmoil between, the different citizens of this town due to a pipeline that's getting put in. So there's already some tension between the citizens and all of a sudden the town is kind of in turmoil because there's assumed that there are werewolves around that are killing off people and animals. Um, The mystery element of it is, is there really werewolves in the town? Is it someone doing this on their own? Is there something else kind of at play? And really the main crux of the movie is the the characters kind of turning on one another and siding with one another. Um, it Its tone reminded me of something like A Knives Out or, or to me more probably Hot Fuzz 
I would say that both of those two movies are better movies than Werewolves Within um, because I think that they nail the tone a little bit better. It felt like with this movie, they had a horror, they had a mystery, and they had a comedy, and they didn't really want to commit to any of those genres wholly. And so it felt like it could have just been a little bit better in those regards. That being said, there's a lot of really funny supporting characters in it. I think that the chemistry between the two main characters is great. Um, Anytime that they're kind of the leads in the scene, I think those are the ones that work the best. Um, I will say this is a movie based on a video game. It is the best video game adaptation I've ever seen. Um, That... I don't think holds very much weight given the fact that most video game adaptations are very bad, but it is a fun movie if you are a fan of kind of the the horror comedy genre. Um, there's some gore effects if you like that, but it's not too over the top. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's a solid watch for anyone that is into that type of movie. Did you have anything that you wanted to include with that? Um, I honestly slept through most of this movie i not that it wasn't entertaining it just it was it had been a long day i think but um it was funny i liked like the moments like you said with the two main characters you could tell that it just was like more natural i guess yes um but yeah i was awake for pretty much the beginning and then the very end and there was resolution so. <laughs> okay, well having seen just the beginning and the very end, uh do you do you feel like maybe watching the middle is a little bit of a waste of time or do you do you get the gist of it? Mm. I would say you get the gist. Well, honestly, I don't think I really missed that much okay. of the in between. I, I think kind of when I stated earlier that each of those genres kind of don't get played up to the extent that they probably should have, um that definitely goes into the mystery element. Um, without giving too much away, I would say that there's kind of a Tarantino style, everyone just kind of turns on each other, Mm. um, moment in this movie, which doesn't really have much that builds up to it that isn't established within the first 20 minutes of the movie. Um, there is a fun resolution though, that is semi hinted at earlier in the movie. Um, but I think I, I don't think you're too far off by saying that that you if you get the the introductions of the characters and then the end of the movie you're not losing too much. That being said, very enjoyable watch. If it's a movie that looks like you like you would like it, I would definitely recommend it. Um, it's not a super long movie, so. And is this is this something that was that you caught in the theaters, or have you caught? Is it out of theaters now? So we caught this uh, on streaming. Um, I think it was on Prime. Okay. Yeah, yeah I want to say that it was a it's a it's an IFC movie, um, but I'm pretty sure it's through. But it was on on Prime. Okay. Um, I was directed towards this movie because one, I like college humor. And so kind of that connection with Josh Rubin um, was something that was intriguing to me. And I like Sam Richardson. Um, for those who don't know who he is, he is um, – he had the show The Detroiters, Detroiters, and he is a frequent collaborator uh, with Tim Robinson from I Think You Should Leave. A very funny guy. Um, and so 
when he, I knew that he was going to be in the movie, I was eager to see how it would go. Since it is a whodunit, do we ever get to see um, like a situation from one character's perspective and then revisit that moment potentially later when we know more and um, maybe see how things played out from another character's point of view? I would say somewhat, okay. not not explored as well as those other two murder mystery movies that I, Knives Out and Hot Fuzz, because I will say the resolution is somewhat simplistic in how they get to it. So there, once you realize what's actually happening, there is some backtracking and getting to see kind of why the events um, led to where they where they went, but not to the same extent that maybe a lot of other mystery movies um, will actually replay scenes from different perspectives. All righty. Well, that is Werewolves Within. You can catch that in its prime, in the prime. <laughs> uh, and up next, I'm going to throw it to Lexi to take the lead on Don't Breathe 2, the sequel to the 2016 Don't Breathe. Yeah, so Don't Breathe 2, it is pretty far removed from the original Don't Breathe movie. The real connection is you're following the same blind man from the first Don't Breathe. I don't know if you guys saw that movie. Um, but for anybody who didn't, um, it is about these three young adults, teenagers, they break into this blind man's house and they think it's just going to be a really easy robbery. They go in, they know that he has a fortune in a safe thinking, oh, he's blind. He's like, there's nothing he can do about it. And he ends up locking them in his house and basically hunting them. Um, you learn he's an ex Navy SEAL. So he has a lot of skills and tools that he uses and there are lots of twists and turns in the first movie but kind of a spoiler alert I guess he survives the first movie even if you don't think he does at the end um and that's where we get to don't breathe too and it's sometime later and he now is the father to a very young girl and he's very um protective over her and he's teaching her all these survival tactics and things like that um and very early in the movie, you see that she is almost being stalked by some very shady characters. And so, again, they break into the house. They know that he's blind, but they don't know his backstory. Um, and he begins hunting them, and it takes a very sharp turn once you learn that they are also ex-Marines, so they know how to fight back. So they end up having a connection to the little girl and without giving too much away um there's just a lot of gratuitous violence and battle between uh the dishonorably discharged marines and this ex-navy seal who's fighting for his daughter but very interesting they have decided to take this monster that was in the first movie because he ends up being the villain ultimately even though people broke into his house um, turning him into really the hero of the second movie and it just you don't really know who to root for everybody was kind of awful except for the little girl you really are just like I, somebody needs to help this girl <laughs> somebody please come get her well if I can say there's a character introduced earlier in the movie that feels like it's going to kind of be the the, the shining light of the movie that can kind of help. And that character is killed off within the first 
10 minutes probably of yes. the movie. Yes. Um, so kind of all so of that. So you thought maybe she had some hope and immediately just light extinguished. Oh, yeah. Nothing left. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, it was, I thought the characters were good. They really made you feel for this little girl and not really much of anything for anybody else because they were just all so awful. So yeah, it was, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I think it's an enjoyable sequel. It definitely um, goes – what I'll say is that you don't really need to have seen the first movie in order to enjoy the second movie. Really, the only thing that's carried over from the movie is that that blind man character. Um, the events, I think, take place eight years after the events of the first movie Yeah, uh, in a completely different location. Um, so – and he is the only one that shows up. Um, I think it kind of follows that typical horror sequel trope where if we – we'll say if we don't think the story is quite up to snuff in comparison to the original, then we're going to add on maybe some extra kills to it. Um, really in the first movie, you're dealing with mainly just four characters. It's just the blind man and the three intruders. In this one, we see a whole lot of different locations, a few more characters, um, giving us more opportunities for some kind of – gratuitous scenes we'll say um yeah enjoyable definitely not as good as the first one um but again i think if you've seen the first one and liked it it's worth a worth a shot yeah i would agree safe to say that it's a more action-oriented film than the first one yep first one i would say is more of your thriller suspense movie second one more action you get a little bit of that sense of like holding your breath and literally don't, don't breathe. breathe. Yes. <laughs> um, but the really enjoyable thing about the first one is you are literally like watching this movie in silence mm-hmm. and you are right there in it and everything is dark. And then in the second one that they kind of take that away once they introduce all these characters that they don't care that he knows how to fight and that he's doing mm-hmm. all these crazy things because they're just as crazy Okay, um, I watched uh, a separate spoiler full review, so I haven't seen the films, but I you are I, aware I know of the story beats. In them. Yeah, Stephen, you're spoiling yourself on movies, watching that's, videos. Yeah, that's it's. I'm. Ah. I I was not dedicated <laughs> to seeing it in the first place. So. For the second that's one, fair. I think that's, that's okay. I would recommend going back and watching the first one. Um, but I I have to ask based on what I know about the story and and what you guys have told me if. The the character of the little girl was not present. Would you have cared about the movie at all? Probably not. I think that she is really the main focal point that you're gonna really feel any connection with. Because if you if you've seen the first one and you didn't just jump straight to the second one, you know what this man has done, what mm-hmm. his story has been like, yeah. and so you really aren't rooting for him in any way. Yes. The 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 little girl is essentially the MacGuffin of the movie, mm-hmm. um, so it's you're following her most of the time, kind of seeing things through her perspective. And and yeah, like you've said, since the other characters are pretty deplorable, I mean, not only are the the quote unquote villains of this movie people that are breaking in and trying to take this girl, but they're also uh, people that run a meth lab and type of stuff like so. 
Like, for example, there's at one point in the movie when one of her kidnappers who is also involved in this meth operation and he does something that's kind of redeemable and you're like, oh, is he going to be the one to take care of her when this is over? And it's like, of course not. (laughs) No. It's more of like a a story beat than it really is a redeemable character where it kind of leads you into the next part of the, the movie it would have been nice to see that character actually be something. Well, but I was hoping that the the character that I mentioned earlier that dies early on would be ultimately the person that kind of helps this little girl because she's really the only redeemable character within the movie. So, I mean, that's the path that they wanted to go with. This is the same writer and director. It's the same two writers of the first movie. The director of the first movie is one of the writers and then the other writer is the director of this movie. So it's the same two guys that are helming both of the movies. And so obviously they had a vision of what they wanted this this lore, I guess, if you want to put it that way, to go. Um, I did feel like it felt almost as if this was a little bit tacked on, more of the piggybacking off the success of the first one as opposed to mm-hmm. a true continuation of this story. I feel with most bottle movies, like movies that take place in one location, they are pretty self-contained, much like the movie, Um, not really leaving anything open for a sequel. There is a little bit of cliffhanger-ness, I guess, to the first movie, but not enough to really drive the need for a sequel. Is there going to be a Don't Breathe 3? Yes or no? What do you think? I do not think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. All right. Excellent. I think they kind of nailed, they put the nail in the coffin. Yeah. Okay. I think, they did what they need to do. Yeah. Now we can yeah. breathe. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, please geez. breathe. We've not been breathing for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Like five years or yeah. something. Yeah. Something like that. that. But we made it. All right. That is Don't Breathe 2. Did you guys catch that in theaters or is that already on streaming? Um, I think it's theaters and streaming. So we we did that also on Prime. Okay. We rented it on Prime. Yes. We it. did one of the early access rentals, but it is in the theaters right now. Okay. All right. So that's how you can catch that. Up next, I'm going to talk briefly about the new Netflix documentary, uh, Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed. Um, most people at this point uh, are familiar with Bob Ross. If they didn't grow up with him, he has a huge resurgence right now uh, in in popular culture, and people are taking Bob Ross classes all over all over the country and just doing Bob Ross parties at home. So this documentary focuses on some of the stuff behind the scenes, uh, what happened to him as he became uh, someone that used to you know be in the military and how he got into painting and how he found himself. Um, on TV, PBS doing 30 minute paintings, you know, multiple times a week, um, and how he eventually met business partners, uh, Walt and Annette Kowalski and, uh, what his legacy is now in the hands of, um, family and or Kowalski's, uh, and, and how that has affected everything after his death. And so this is, uh, this is sort of like an investigative piece. Well, I know that um, Melissa McCarthy and 
is it Ben Falcone? Is yep. that what his name those is? Those were the names, yeah. So those were the – I know that they're executive producing. Mm-hmm. Did either of them direct? I know that Ben Falcone is a director also. I don't think that they are the directors. It's like exactly. Joshua Raffae. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unfamiliar. Yeah. Um, so – when when you look at the title on Netflix, you think it's sort of kind of like a going to be like a hit piece on Bob Ross, and so like definitely sinister sounding. Yeah, and and while that that sinister element is certainly there, um, I do not want lovers of Bob Ross to be afraid because Bob Ross uh, is almost entirely um, the kind person that you think he is. That that's not to say that he was without you know troubles in his life or, or faults or anything like that. Um, but, but it really shows how, um, his, his business partners, the Kowalskis were able to manipulate or even outright sort of not directly, but sort of like steal, you know, some of, some of Bob Ross's like intellectual property and, and how, how that affects like his remaining family members. Like most of the, most of the discussion actually comes from his, his son, Steve, I believe is his name. Um, and, and how he watched all these things as he's growing up and, and coming into an adult who's also a pretty successful painter on his own. Um, but, but seeing how this family, the Kowalskis, uh, sort of took the wheel and drove, drove the car of the, the Bob Ross Inc. And, and what that means for the Bob Ross products that you see today and what that also means for his family today and and other painters that were in the industry at the time uh, and how it affected them to almost create, you know, not quite a monopoly on like television painting, but a little bit create a monopoly on television painting. So it's really it's really interesting to see all of these things that happen behind the scene that um, some people knew about, but in general, like most people thought Bob Ross was the happy fro man painter and, <laughs> and that, you know, he could do uh, that, that nothing wrong could happen uh, except for, you know, his getting sick and dying pretty young. But yeah. um, so I, I recommend checking it out. Um, definitely. Uh, I don't think would really hurt anybody that loves Bob Ross, but it might make you think, think a couple extra minutes about maybe buying the Bob Ross, you know, Funko Pop or something. So So let me ask you this, Stefan. Do you have memories? Do you have happy little memories of watching (laughs) Bob Ross as a kid? Um, And if so, did you bring that reminiscence into this experience and how did it affect you watching this? So to be honest, when I was in that age where I was watching PBS frequently, I was very much the kind of kid that only watched cartoons. And if anything uh, live yeah. action came on, I kind of checked out. Okay. So that I'm, and then by the time, like I, you know, was able to appreciate more forms of art, uh, I already knew like how terrible I was at uh, <laughs> visual art. So it was just like Bob Ross was never like something that I was able to utilize, so to speak. Gotcha. So, I mean, I'm I'm familiar with him, and he he's always been so pleasant. Um, and I, I I had seen it before, and I remember I think my grandma probably watched Bob Ross sometimes uh, when I was over at her house, but uh, I never participated in in painting. Yeah, that's a a good question because I think with uh, "Won't You Be My Neighbor" coming out a few years ago, mm-hmm. also similar type of um, childhood uh, kind of learning character that is holds a lot of resonance with a lot of people, especially 
in our age demographic. Um, it's it's fun to kind of get that deeper dive in there. I am looking forward to it. I know that Won't You Be My Neighbor definitely has more of a positive mm-hmm. kind of oh, yeah. focus on it. I mean, with Mr. Rogers being a very positive person. Um, so when I saw especially the title, yeah. I was like, is this going in a completely different direction than uh, what you would expect from a character like Bob Ross? Right. Or a person, not just a character. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm interested to see if this is continues to be a trend of just kind of exploring these beloved childhood figures and kind of giving them their time to show kind of who they are past what we saw of them on the screen. Right. Yeah. Well, well, with this uh, this current recording date, uh, we recently reached the what twenty twenty fifth anniversary of Blues Clues or something. Yes. I was just thinking that actually. <laughs> I was when that, is the Steve documentary right. going to yeah. come out? That might be up next. So. What you just yeah. described though is exactly why I loved that twenty eighteen beautiful day in the neighbor. No, one should be my neighbor. Well, I get those a beautiful day up. in the neighborhood. Also came out I think within a year, yeah, a year or of two it. After, so yeah. you got the narrative and the documentary. But the documentary, one of my favorite films of that year, and mm-hmm. I think it's because it basically. You know, confirmed it corroborated exactly. my my strong attachment that I had to mm-hmm. Mr. Yeah. Rogers. Any reservations you him. may have with Mr. Rogers, it definitely puts those to rest. In in, won't you be my neighbor? Yeah. I'm just I'm waiting for the Steve Irwin documentary now oh, to yeah. come out. Yes. I feel like that's Surprise kind of there hasn't been one. I mean, similar situation uh, where someone who is taken from from us at a time when we probably weren't expecting it, who is very beloved. Yeah. Um, especially from people our age. So just calling it right now. Just look out a couple of years from now, Steve Irwin. Steve Irwin's son does a lot of that stuff that Steve used yes. to do. You know, he shows up on TV a lot. I could see, you know, I don't know how old he is now, but I know he was like showing up on late night shows to yes. like basically do Steve Irwin stuff, like what his dad used to do. If he's too young, like maybe give him a few more years to grow up a bit and he could be the subject, like a secondary mm-hmm. subject in a documentary about his dad. And, and that would be a really powerful tie in maybe. Well, I yeah, know that absolutely. the whole family kind of has kept going with that. I know Bindi, his daughter, is Bindi his daughter, mm-hmm. okay. yeah, has also kind of continued to do some of that stuff. And, cool. and his wife has continued to do it as well. I know that she played a pretty large role in just what Steve did in general. Yeah. So I think that's a great idea because you can kind of see it through his son's eyes as well as kind of exploring kind of what Steve went through. Yeah, that gives me goosebumps just thinking about his family, like <laughs> talking about his legacy and, and mm-hmm. talking about how they're bringing it forward too. Yeah. I think um, for me, I was a little bit too young to be – in that age where I was watching like Mr. Rogers and Bob Ross, those were never things that I really watched. And now that I'm an adult and I've seen, uh, I didn't see the documentary, but I saw the we um, did watch be- one. beautiful day in yeah. the neighborhood. And um, just watching some of the Bob Ross videos on YouTube, like you said, people have the Bob Ross parties now where you just go to Michael's and you buy your supplies and you sit down and watch the videos and follow along. I realize how much of that like missed nostalgia I have. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, like I can just picture being young, like watching these men being like, oh, this is so fun. That's a They're good word so for wholesome. It. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, you can catch that on Netflix. It is a Netflix documentary. Uh, so I hope that you'll check that out. Up next, before we move into our feature film, we've got one more. Uh, we're going to talk about false positive real quick. Fantastic. So, False Positive is a uh, Hulu original movie. 
Um, this is a movie starring uh, Alana Glazer, who most people know from Broad City. Um, it also stars uh, J- Justin Theroux and Pierce Brosnan, a very solid cast. Um, also directed by John Lee, who I was unfamiliar with, uh, but after doing some research, um, created Wonder Shows in. Is that something? It was an MTV show, kind of a parody of uh, Sesame Street, but kind of in a darker sense. And then he also directed Pee Wee's Big Holiday, the Netflix original sequel of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Um, so with that going in, you kind of expect it to have a little bit of kind of mania to mm-hmm. it, kind of that silliness. Um, but the the general plot synopsis is uh, Alana Glazer and Justin Throw are a married couple that have been struggling to get pregnant. And um, Justin Throw, who is also in the medical field, kind of pulls some strings to get into this very exclusive fertility clinic that is ran by Pierce Brosnan. Now, if you're listening to this and you know that it's a horror movie, you're probably thinking, ah, this is another Rosemary's Baby movie. Uh-huh. I will say that it is. it does go a little bit different from there. They do pull some different punches than you would see from a typical pregnancy horror movie. Um, but it, it kind of follows those same beats where um, she does – get pregnant and then she doesn't expect everyone to be exactly as they as she seem as they seem um and that goes from the doctors to everyone in the clinic to her husband and even to the friends that she's made while she's pregnant um i think this movie was kind of sold to me as a as a kind of a horror thriller but i kind of had a comedy feeling given some of the people that were in the movies i will say this movie is not really funny would you i would agree i don't think it's trying to be in any way it's just Um, very interesting given the people that are behind the production of the movie this was also written by alana glazer who is exclusively done comedy so definitely a different step for her um i think it's kind of stepping a little bit forward into the Candyman. I know that Jordan Peele has said that comedians and people attached to the horror genre are kind of kindred spirits and that they're both seeking reactions, whether that be laughs or scares. So I think it's not super surprising now that watching the movie that this is just another part of that type of creative person. I really don't, there's really not much to say without getting into spoilers with the movie um, what I will say with it is that I enjoyed it for the most part, but it does move a little slower than I would have liked it to. And I will say um, that um, there's kind of a pseudo mystery element in terms of who everyone is and who is actually doing the things that the main character thinks they're doing or if it's actually in her head. And it kind of resolves it in a way that was pseudo dissatisfactory to me. Would you agree with that? Um, I really liked it. I liked the ending. I love a slow burn movie that really makes you question if you're if the protagonist is seeing things the way that you're seeing things or if their experience is skewing what you're seeing. Sure. If that makes sense. The, I think my biggest issue in regards to that, though, is that they kind of had their cake and ate it, too, where they kind of have you going in two different directions. And then they kind of do both of them instead of having one be the more predominant 
like, oh, this is actually what's happening. It's like, oh, this was it and this was it. See, and I think it could be that or it could be that they're just trying to make you more confused. And that could very well be it. Um, it, I did enjoy it for the most part, though. Um, Like I said, it is a Hulu original movie. So if you have a Hulu account, it's free. Um, Definitely something to check out. Um, Yeah, it's it's very strange. And it definitely feels familiar with putting a few unfamiliar touches to it. Yeah, I'm watching – well, not actively watching, but I a, a trailer auto played while I was pulling up okay. some of the stuff here on Rotten Tomatoes, and and I'm I'm noticing that like the the composition of a, the, a lot of the shots are very like uncomfortable. Yes, uh, and so uh, I have to admit that that has me really interested, um, in spite of of what popped up underneath on Rotten Tomatoes, which was very poor scores across the board. But really, I, yeah. I actually did not check to see. I assumed it was yeah. probably middle of the road. Given that it kind of has a, a divisive nature to it, mm. what it, do you know what it's at right now? Yeah, so uh, we've got the critic review score of forty seven, wow. and the audience score of sixteen. Ooh. Wow! So I will say that the that the movie is better than that. Interesting. Um, there's I, probably people that are upset that Alana straightened her hair. She's known for having curly hair on Broad City. Yeah. I was going to ask you a question, Jay, yes. on this topic. Since you were a little bit more negative about the end, mm-hmm. I'm looking this movie up on Letterboxd. I'm looking at user reviews. Top review from a user on Letterboxd, meaning most likes on this review, give it a one star out of five. Ouch. Yikes. Their first sentence, first sentences read, the last 10 minutes of this are some of the worst filmmaking I've ever seen. Wow. I think the people involved should actually be banned from any film productions in the future to prevent any further mess polluting this world. Do you think that that is warranted? No, definitely not. Wow. My So I, I, just to clarify, my biggest issues with the ending is that they tried to do both of what I thought the endings were together. Now, it does take a very odd turn at the end. Like, very odd. Uh, so, in an unexpected way? I would say so. You you learn things about certain characters that can definitely be off-putting to, to a viewer. Um, I think that, that that reviewer may have great movie tastes, but I would say that that is an over-exaggeration of, of how this movie ends. Um, yeah, I that that seems pretty extreme. Yeah, they do expound on it. They have a long review. I'm not going to read it all, but that first few sentences is you know representative of their overall opinion. So I just wanted to see if you you uh, were in alignment there. Yeah, I, I I'm also not the type of person that lets a, a series of time within the movie ruin my viewing experience for the rest of the movie. Now the movie might have the worst ten minutes of all time at the end. But if I enjoyed the first 80 minutes of that movie, Doesn't it's not going to get a one-star yeah. review from from me. So I don't know if this this type of reviewer is a little bit more... Particular? Kind of particular, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I will we'll say it since it way. is the ending of the movie, it may leave a sour taste in your mouth. Um, I would definitely not say that it is that extreme by any means, um, but it, it will put off some people. Like I said, I feel like if you're open to interpreting it 
the way that you want to, mm-hmm. I think they leave it more open to that because I I think that over the course of the entire movie, you are being convinced that and you're being convinced because she is truly like becoming insane. Yeah. Like the things that she's doing and experiencing are causing her to just be delusional. So I don't think that I don't think that what you see at the end is necessarily what's going on in the real world. Well, definitely. There's one thing that happens yeah. that's definitely more science fiction-y. Um, but they kind of explain it as baby brain, which I am not familiar with, um, which I guess is when pregnant women are carrying, they can kind of think. I, I Do you know anything about that? I know that's a recurring I mean, thing within the movie. It's a very common thing that people tell pregnant women is that they decide like, have pregnancy brain and they forget things and it sounds like senioritis or something (laughs) like just kind of an excuse but it it could be legitimate i'm not discrediting that but it almost felt like a form of gaslighting kind of just writing off someone's concerns because of something else Mm. Um, like she's becoming increasingly paranoid and they're just mm. telling her oh it's pregnancy brain yeah Mm. so you don't really know what is truly pregnancy brain and what is really happening to More her. open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay, I can do that. Okay. Cool. Well, that is on Hulu. You can check that out uh, if you have a Hulu account. Do you have a, a fun watch it on Hulu term yet? <laughs> oh. I think we used to say like catch it in the green, but that's really because Hulu's all green. Yeah. I don't, Isn't that I, what we said? I don't remember. I Hulu didn't really come up too often in the past. Well, Hulu yeah. is primarily a television service, yeah. so you don't catch very yeah. many movies they, on there. They do have some great documentaries and great indie films. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember reviewing a couple things on there, but you're I don't remember a, what we said. You're a free rock climbing Free one. Solo? Free, free Solo. Solo. I remember there. watching oh, original. Uh, Three Identical Strangers was on that. Oh, yeah. Great. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, we don't. Uh, not that I was not caught it that I on remember. Hulu. Yeah, I, when I, I was when I was prepping for this, I was thinking, I wonder if Stefan has a transition <laughs> for that. Caught, caught it. it, caught it in the loo. In the loo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Um, According okay. to that reviewer, yes, it is in the loo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So this is the part of the podcast where we move on into our feature film and our feature film. This episode is the 2021 version of Candyman, which, as it turns out, is a sequel to the original. And I am so thankful to our new co-host, Erica, uh, for catching it before most of the rest of us and letting us know, uh, because I had not seen the original. And because of her, I did. So, 2021's Candyman follows uh, Anthony McCoy, an artist... Uh, as he is moving in with his partner, uh, Brianna, in their new apartment in Chicago. And uh, we learn pretty quick that this is sort of like a gentrified area of Chicago um, and and sort of plays up the relationship between artists and gentrification, uh, as well as gentrification and race uh, and and puts all of these elements into the the legend of Candyman 
uh, that we're introduced to in the 1992 film. And so it, it, it follows, uh, for the most part, Anthony McCoy as he becomes interested in the legend of Candyman uh, and tries to apply this to his art, like his visual art. Uh, and in doing so, the, the legend of Candyman is reborn and uh, a series of deaths in the city follow. Uh, so I want to throw it to Lexi first. I want to hear what you thought about 2021's Candyman and uh, if you saw the original, how you compare and contrast. Um, yes. So again, thank you to Erica because we we had planned on watching we the original, watching it. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't as high on our list to watch it. Um, and it was very helpful and insightful to see that before watching the 2021 Candyman. Um, I really enjoyed it, but I did like the original more. I liked that in the original, they just truly make Candyman like this monster and he's kind of out there to kill anything at will. Um, in the new one, it really... Not that I didn't enjoy it, but I thought that it was a very interesting take on the social issues that we're seeing right now. Um, and it was just different from the original one where you don't really get to see Candyman as this monster that's out there. Because in the end, you're almost kind of rooting for him to come in and save the day, you know. Um, there were some things in the movie that we both agreed were just kind of unnecessary. Like some of the killing scenes, it seems like they just really wanted to get in there and um, add some of the violence in. For example, there's a scene with like the teenage girls in the bathroom that mm -hmm. is pretty unrelated to anything else that's going on in the movie, except for the fact that she was at the art gallery. So just to, sorry to interrupt, but I rewatched the trailer today and that scene is predominantly featured in the trailer and it felt as if that was put in there as a selling point for the movie. Um, just something that I that I kind of picked up from rewatching the trailer today. Um, but yeah, I like I said, I thought that the social justice angle was really interesting for them to incorporate that, and um, for Anthony to be so drawn to this location, and then he makes his entire art piece around saying my name say my name which we've heard a lot over the past year um in that bringing Candyman back like this legend back from where it was put to rest some time ago in 1992 so yes. we decided mm -hmm. yes but yeah i i did like it i thought it was a a fun take and very jordan peele-esque mm-hmm I'm a big fan. Uh, I suppose before we move on to anyone else's reviews, we probably should state that the very boiled down basic version of The Legend of Candyman is that if you look in the mirror and say Candyman five times, he will appear in the reflection and kill you. So having that in mind, since we did not say that yet. <laughs> uh, For anyone who is unfamiliar yes. with, with it. <laughs> Um, okay, he'll, Jake. He'll rip you from groin to gullet, I think is yes. a quote from, yeah, from one of them. One of them, yeah. yeah. Nice. That's a very Clive Barker, the <laughs> writer of the movie, thing to do. Um, 
Jake, I want to hear what you thought. How do you compare and contrast the first one, and and what are your general thoughts on the new one? So I was familiar with the original Candyman. Um, I had seen it in the past, but it had been a while since um, since I had seen it, and so I was very it was very good to see it again. We saw it. I want to say, did we watch it the night before we went and saw it? So it was yeah. very fresh in our minds. Um, without getting too into spoilers. Um, a, a kind of a interesting comparison piece between the two movies is the the insanity versus investigation side of the movies um, with kind of the main characters and how that leads into the construction of the story. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed Candyman, but with the original in my mind, it did make me kind of long for some of the beats that were in the original Candyman. I think ultimately I liked that one better. But I, I think that in terms of a lot of not great horror movies that come out, this definitely stands above a lot of the movies that you would see in the theaters. Um, of the four movies that we've talked about today, it was definitely my favorite of the four. But yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of really fun kind of little tidbits that they put in this movie. Um, there's a cool mirrored effect that opens the movie with the production titles where it's all backwards to kind of show that whole mirror aspect of the movie, which I thought was very cool. Uh, There's a cool kind of shadow puppet thing motif that's done throughout the movie um, that I think was kind of a cool effect that I hadn't really seen in a horror movie. I think kind of using fun animation or childlike things kind of adds that creepiness to it. I think of, I think the Conjuring movies do a really good job of this with kind of the the um, the different weird this I can't even I want to say Slender Man but it's not Slender Man that's not neither here nor like there the nursery rhyme the nursery rhyme type of thing I think of the Babadook the Babadook is another great example of that where you kind of take this childlike thing and you turn it into kind of a, a scary thing I thought that was a fun touch to it um, but ultimately. I, I did enjoy kind of the construction of the story of the first one more than the than the the new one. Okay. Um, so I'm going to offer just a little bit of a of a contrarian review, not contrarian, but I guess I did feel a little bit differently, and then I'll I'll throw it to Bo after that. But Perfect. Um, uh, so I was in a similar boat. I watched uh, the original Candyman. I think two or three days before I ended up seeing the new one. Uh, And I saw that for the first time. And I was always really excited to see it once I uh, sort of fell in love with Tony Todd and his voice. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was very excited to finally see Candyman, only to not see as much of Tony Todd as I would have liked. But uh, if you don't if you wanted to see Tony Todd, then the new one was definitely was definitely not the direction. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But that's neither here nor there. Uh, So I actually. I enjoyed the second one way more than oh, the first one. Great, um, and a little bit of that has to do with sort of uh, the investigation versus insanity sort of angle. Um, whereas you were sort of describing where you kind of don't know with false positives, like what's real and what's mm-hmm. not, and what's insanity, what's not. In the second one, I feel like that sort of insanity angle was handled a little bit better. Whereas in the first one, until like the very end, it was like, I don't know who is actually behind these acts of violence. And I, and I'm sure that was like the point of the movie. 
Um, but it, it wasn't until like literally the very last, you know, two scenes where I was like, I still, I still don't know <laughs> if, if our main character is insane or not, mm-hmm. uh, or if there is a supernatural element in the second one, supernatural plays a role pretty quickly. Like yes. you learn pretty quick that supernatural is at play here and that you don't really have to guess too much, even though insanity is still playing a role. It's just not playing a role in the violence. Mm-hmm. I would say. Uh, and there's a lot of cool imagery in the second one that I really loved that I didn't totally, you know, get to pick up on in the first one. Um, a lot of, I, I would say like my favorite use of, of imagery was the, the, the beasting and how like all of the elements that we're talking about in this movie, both realistic and social, as well as, you know, contained within the movie in itself allowing it to sit and fester uh, is something that makes all of those elements worse. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was really uh, played very well visually uh, in this, in this beasting. And and when you see the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about um, because I think it's very cool and a really great use of makeup. Whoever you oh, know yeah. worked on that uh, really incredible stuff going on there too. Yeah. By the end, it was hard to look at almost. <laughs> yeah. Very. Yeah. I, I have this, uh, I have this thing where like, I can watch a lot of uh, violence or gory movies, but when you like start cutting off fingers <laughs> or like messing with fingers, that's like a thing for me. So, eventually, it did get to the point where I was like squirming in my seat a little bit. But <laughs> anyways, so that's my general review. I I did enjoy the second one quite a bit more. Uh, but Bo, before we move into spoilers, I want to hear what you thought. Yeah. So original 1992 Candyman. Didn't watch it immediately before this movie, but I did refresh myself on the plot. So I read through the plot again. A lot of it was super familiar, even just reading it. Um, that story um, has pretty much stayed with me pretty well. Um, I, I I thought it was a pretty good movie, the 1992 movie. I the, My biggest issues with that is that, you know, I wish there was more Candyman in it. I wish that the movie didn't abandoned some of its themes and ideas that I thought were super interesting in like the first two thirds by the end. Um, I think the movie kind of jettisons a lot of the interesting things it has going on for itself by the end. Um, but then getting to this movie, I am in alignment with you, Stefan. I loved this movie. I did not think it's perfect, but I think this is an awesome sequel. Uh, this movie takes the Candyman legend and it expands on it in very interesting and thought provoking ways. It's one film where I actually root for the monster to kill everyone. So I know that that's a detractor for some people. Like, oh, I want to be scared by the monster. I don't want to, like, root for him. That's something that I think the monster earns in this movie, you know, over and over again. I don't, I didn't enjoy seeing every killing. I don't think every killing is enjoyable because there's um, two people, I can think off the top of my head, two people that get killed that, you know, I don't want to see those people die, but a lot of them, oh my gosh. Um, I loved seeing that <laughs> as dark as that sounds, um, filmmaking on display is simple, but effective. I loved all the mirror stuff, all the reflection stuff. Yes. This movie employs mirrors and reflections in a way that make you watch the movie differently. You're, you, I was scanning every single corner of the film. Whenever there was a window, I was looking at the reflection. Like if there's a mirror, I'm, is there Candyman lurking around? Mm-hmm. Kind of like what hereditary did for us. I remember mm-hmm. us reviewing hereditary yes. and how, in, especially in the dark scenes, how you would look into the shadows and you'd notice something and your skin would just crawl. I don't know that this movie does that quite as effectively, 
but it was still making me watch the movie differently. So I have to give it credit for that. Um, at the core, there's a lot of high concepts going on in this movie. You touched on a lot of them in your uh, synopsis. I really like how it explores the selfishness in our society, uh, in the way we seem to care more about human rights. If there's a certain notoriety or something we can gain from supporting those human rights, that's, that's a theme that's explored here. Um, another theme that's carried out is this notion that um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. A character even says it verbatim at one point. And I liked this theme because it reinforces the human behavior we witness, not just in our named characters, but in just society in this movie. Um, the timeline jumps around between the past and the present, and we actually see history repeat itself, and we see how entire communities can misunderstand the truth. Um, it made me think about how racism can occur in very overt ways, even after many years pass. And this Cabrini-Green district goes through a lot of changes physically, uh, but even though there's like a new coat of paint, this place is really, at the end of the day, always meant to trap and uh, torture black people, basically. Um, I don't think it's a perfect film. I think there's a heavy handedness with how it's communicating a lot of its themes. I think the script is very aware about its responsibility to hold a mirror up to our society, pun intended. Um, <laughs> But it indulges so much in announcing what it's doing at times and over-explaining things. And to me, it just kind of felt like it didn't trust the audience uh, with all those moments. And um, we can get to what some of those are, maybe in spoilers, but they're basically just explaining concepts like um, what what is gentrification? There's a character who, it sounds like they're reading the, the dictionary you know, definition of it uh, to the audience. And it's like, oh, I'm noticing the script now. I see what you're doing, movie. You're telling me what gentrification is. It didn't feel like natural moment. Um, so there were, there were a few moments like that. Um, but overall, I appreciated that the high concepts in 2021 Candyman felt really consistent and felt like they were of our time. And I, I just, I had a great time. I loved that it was 90 minutes. I love short movies. It, was, it felt like a really efficient movie. It felt like it did a lot with its runtime. Um, and I have to give it props there too. So I really liked it. By the time I got out of it, I was expecting to see, you know, close to midnight and it was barely 11. So it was, it was... They, they definitely pack a lot into it. Yeah. Um, just, I wanted to, to second the whole background and mirror style, uh, horror. That's some of my favorite type of horror. I was thinking about hereditary. It's also thinking a lot about the strangers, mm. um, with a lot of the background style, um, and I think that's when it's really effective when you can focus on things that are outside of the picture. And it, it rewards rewatch rewatches. So All right. Unless anyone has anything to add, this is the point where we're going to move on to spoilers. So does anyone have anything? I definitely have a couple thoughts to talk about in spoilers <laughs> where I have a little bit more negative to say. But uh <laughs> we'll take a we'll take a short break here and the, we'll be back on the other side of the bumper. Really being that simple. The secret lies with Charlotte. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Aren't you asking us to accept a pretty incredible coincidence? I'm just saying a coincidence is possible. And I say it's not possible. Where are those keys, Rose? You know I can't give you the keys, right, babe? Silent Green is people! The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And like that, he's gone. All 
right, and we're back. Uh, there's not one main big twist, I would say, but um, one of the things that maybe you don't pick up on right away is that uh, the main character is actually the baby from the first film. Yes. And when I watched the first one, damn it, I said, I, I know I have to remember that this kid's name is Anthony. Mm. <laughs> and then I got to the movie and immediately just did not check in there. You know what's awesome, though, is... The movie works if you know the baby from the first movie is that guy, or if you don't. Because mm-hmm. I had read the reread the plot synopsis, didn't even make the connection, and then that moment hit really hard for me when he visits his mom, and you know, it's like, oh yeah, this is, oh yeah, oh yeah, and <laughs> yeah. but you you go and read articles about this movie. I was doing research after I saw it. There were so many articles on film websites where they already knew this character's name and they're starting to analyze what this film might be about and what the implications are of Anthony now being 30 years older. And, and for those people, they went in and it, it painted how they saw the movie and they were probably thinking constantly back to the first film while Mm -hmm. watching it. So I think like, whether you know it or not, it gives you a cool experience. I had the same experience as you though, where I didn't make that connection right away. Well, when I, when, when, Erica let us know that it was a direct sequel. I was thinking, okay, there's either there's one of three characters that are going to be a big part of it. It's the the main female character, it's Anthony, or it's Jake, the little boy from the original movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which going in, I was or when we were watching, I was like, it would it almost feels like the laundromat owner could have been that Jake character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it could have been another kind of connective tissue since he also has experience with with Candyman and especially with Cabrini Green and all that, but but yeah, I, I think the movie holds up still, even if you haven't seen the movie, because it is so kind of it still brings you in. Like obviously there are point there are plot elements that definitely benefit from seeing the first movie, but but yeah, it's the same thing. If even if you forget that that's the the kid, I think you can still enjoy it just the same. Yeah, and kind of going off what Jake said and what you said too, like you don't really need to have seen the first movie because the script does that very over explanation of everything that's going on. They recap things through those puppet shows and through just characters talking. I think a a big uh, goal for this movie is to introduce, just reintroduce this character to society and to, to new audiences, younger audiences who didn't even grow up in the nineties. You know what I mean? So it's, it, it tries to be a thing kind of for both kinds of audiences. And I think it's pretty successful. I think one of the things that helps it to stand on its own a little bit and, and is, part of one of my criticisms also is that the legend of Candyman kind of changes like it evolves it's it doesn't yeah. it doesn't feel like the same Candyman as the first one and we touched on that pre-spoilers but like the the idea is that if you look in the mirror say his name five times he kills you or I guess in the case of the first one you die in a fire because of him but um the rules there kind of, are characters that are killed in a traditional slasher yes, style. But the rules kind of seem to change for a second Candyman. Yeah. Some mm-hmm. of the people can summon Candyman without getting killed by him. Some of them can summon him and become a part of him, uh, which I guess was the goal in the first one, mm-hmm. which still I'm not totally clear on. <laughs> so that's part of one of my criticisms is that the rules don't seem consistent across both films. Some people can utilize Candyman and some people yeah. uh, are, are victims just because they took part. Well, that- so I kind of have a, a little bit of a theory on that. And 
going back to like the social justice aspect of that. Um, and I think they did a really good job with this, especially Anthony incorporating it into his artwork that the say my name aspect of Candyman becomes really performative for certain people. And so like your performative racial alliance is like ultimately going to be your downfall. So like these microaggressions that we're seeing from the art critic and like the outward racism that we're seeing from some of the other characters, they are saying they're saying his name, but they're finding the consequences of that. So I think it is a rule change from the first one, but I think it is aligned well with what the movie was trying to do in the first place. Right. I And I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. And I think that they took that shift and, and made it their own. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just something that, that initially bothered me. I was just yeah. like, it, you know, I got to the end and I was like, okay, but she's not going to die. She's, you know, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, I kind of thought the same thing because in the in the first movie, and I think this is where my comment came from. Instead of you like rooting for Candyman to kill everybody, that mm-hmm. it was like being awful in the second one. In the first one, you have the characters like the friend who was helping her do the investigation. Who I don't think she even was the one. She didn't say it. All five times, did no, she? I she think, didn't. yeah, and she she's just, just kind of gets, an innocent bystander. Yeah, she gets caught in the crosshairs. So, well, it kind of it, the first movie definitely feels like a sticking your nose in the in someone else's business type of thing, where the the main character is is essentially is she working on her dissertation or something like that? That's like a thesis, right. yeah. like a thesis yeah. of some sort. And so, really, the people that are in the way, essentially are just people who are also getting involved with someone who is investigating who Candyman is as opposed to someone who is essentially inhabiting the spirit of Candyman like in the two th- or in the 21 version um where it's kind of like we we get to see the 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 cops we get to see the the girls that are picking on this other girl we get to see the snooty art critic people kind of be, come to their demise as opposed to just kind of collateral damage characters in the first movie. Um, yeah. The other thing that I had an issue with that felt a little uh, forced, I guess I would say, is that um, the the laundromat character, whose name I've already Burke. forgotten, Burke, Burke, uh, is is sort of like a like an instigator, like a like a <laughs> prophecy fulfiller. <laughs> I I felt yeah. like that was a little. Um, a little forced, a little uh, manufactured, manufactured, campy. Yeah. I yeah. would say even it's it's very uh, like you know Digimon, you know season two <laughs> or something like. Yeah, you could chalk that up as his direct interactions with Candyman, both with him essentially causing a Candyman with the man that that lives in the laundry room, essentially, yeah. Yeah. and then also his sister coming. To her demise through See, the Candyman. That's another one. That's that was the that one. was the death that or the deaths because it was yeah. his sister and his sister's friend who died. That was the like one scene I could think of where oh I don't want to watch this. Well, Murder. and yeah. I think yeah. that goes into like we were good with him causing that the Candyman, the man who gave candy, his connection to him being his kind of tether to Candyman. We didn't need this second 
connection with his sister also being there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and I want to talk about Burke's intentions at the end because um, the whole end kind of hinges on what he's doing and how he lures the cops to uh, the Cabrini Green houses. Because I was only like 50% sure on what Burke's plan was and like what he intended to do and like why he was doing it. I, mm-hmm. I kind of thought like his stuff became oddly prioritized at the end. Yeah. And um, just want to know what your reading was on like what he was trying to do, because I think what it was is they had the scene where he's a kid and he screams cause he sees the, the guy, I forget the character's name, but the guy who's trying to give him candy and then the cops rush in, they've been looking for him and they murder him on the spot. And it's a very traumatic thing for a kid to go through. And I saw, I, I was reading it as like, it's, he's trying to create this new candy man that can be this force of revenge that he can utilize, right? He's, he understands the power of candy man and now he's trying to harness it in a way. Is it, am I, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think, okay. yeah. I think that's the intention there. Okay. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know. It, it felt like he just suddenly came back in full force, man. And yeah. he was just like, he's in the movie now. It was and, very like breakneck. And, I, yes. and maybe that's mm-hmm. my biggest problem with it. It was just like, you know, it, it was this mentor character. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's, he's kind of a villain, which like these beats make sense. But then it throws in this like flashback immediately to so that I guess you understand how he understands the powers of Candyman yeah. and, you know, with these new rules. But it's I don't it felt very sudden to me Mm -hmm. and I yeah now you talked about the changing of the rules with like who can summon Candyman who can use him who is safe from him and that's that's a a negative for you what did you think about the expansion of the mythology of who Candyman can be you know with it's not just Tony Todd it's not just that dude he's Mm -hmm. not Candyman and I know that I didn't see the two 90s sequels but I know that those movies were really um, focused on just showing more of that character, more of that Tony Todd character, giving him a name. He had a backstory in the first 1992 film, but giving him a name, have, giving him more screen time, he interacts with more people, and they're mostly inconsequential because they don't really deepen the mythology like mm-hmm. this new movie. But one powerful image to me that kind of wrapped everything up for me is that end where she does summon him and he walks around the cop car and every single window, you see a reflection that is a different incarnation of the Candyman, a different representation of a black person who has been murdered by usually police or some kind of authority. And I just thought that was so powerful and and the perfect summation of what they're trying to do with this new myth. And that is also reaffirmed in the credit sequence as yeah. well, um, where they kind of uh, shadow puppet all of the previous incarnations, I guess you want to say, of the Candyman. I will say when in the – is it the opening scene when the brother is telling the story of Candyman and he's telling the story about the the man that was giving candy with the razor blades, I was like, oh, are they going to change the complete like mythos of this movie because we had just watched it. Like, oh, are they not going to do the painter Mm -hmm. relationship story here? And so when that eventually kind of paid off with these different ones, and I think that kind of goes into Burke's kind of idea of what he wants to do. It's almost like a manufactured type of thing where each generation almost has their own kind of – I don't want to use just like social justice 
person type of thing, but just someone who can be seen as a representation of being put down because they are a black person yeah. or kind by like an authority. Martyr. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think he even says something like that when he's going through the the actual cutting off of Anthony's hand mm-hmm. and and all of that, just saying like I'm creating he says yeah. something that's he along says, those lines. He says like he says something to the effect of like there are tropes to who Candyman is. You don't have to get every detail right, but there's some uh consistencies mm-hmm. and that's when he's hacking off his arm and putting in the, the hook and stuff and giving him the trench coat you know mm-hmm. he uh he had a line earlier too that really uh made the the shadow puppet sequence in the credits really powerful for me anyways he, he said candy man's the whole damn hive is what he said yes. mm-hmm. and so like that yeah. on top of tony todd's actual actual air quotes appearance in this movie um uh really brought that all together and i thought oh what a cool idea to like make these bees, the bee imagery, a little bit more powerful yes. and, and mm-hmm. consider it a hive and, and how they're all the same but all different. And, and I and, thought that was and pretty that's cool. And that's why I love this sequel. It's why I actually like this movie more than the first because to me, it takes a very interesting horror figure from 1992 and it expands on it. And I think it retroactively makes the first film better to me. You know, it makes me want to go back and revisit that first film, whereas... Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have wanted to do that. And I think that's really powerful. I was to, to I was going to gonna say that. that I'm a little bit jealous of anyone that had seen the first one already like a long time ago and then saw this one. Yeah. Because I, I wish that I had that gap of time because seeing this, there's a lot of things in there that would have made me want to go back and see the first one if I hadn't just seen it, it mm-hmm. within the last yes. week. So right. I am a little bit envious of, of people that have been watching Candyman already for a long time. And and how powerful to see this like um same actress that plays Anthony's mom, yeah. you know, 30 years yeah. older. That's so crazy that they got I bet that was so emotional for her mm-hmm. to oh, yeah. to do that even just that one scene she did. Yeah. Yeah. She had the she even had the scar on her arm from the the meat cleaver attack. Mm-hmm. Just so cool. We Great had watched touch. the movie the day before. Like I said, I I did not like recognize her in the trailer. Like mm-hmm. when we watched the movie, I wasn't like, "Oh, that's yeah, that's her from the trailer." Does, they do show a little bit of her in the trailer. That's right. So. Yeah, and I, I think it was maybe like five minutes before they did the reveal in the theater. I was like, "Oh, yeah, I bet, mm-hmm. I bet that's him." See, it was it wasn't even until uh, they went to he went to his mom's apartment. I was like, "Wait, wait," because I did recognize her face, but like, yeah, seeing the yeah. trailer. So long ago. Yeah, but you're totally right. I would have loved to have seen the first one a while ago and then had that moment of just like. Yeah, now I'm upset that I rewatched it again. <laughs> Missed that opportunity. Oh, man. Okay, so are there any other thoughts, any other criticism, any other like positive points, you know, in the spoiler territory that we want to bring up before we wrap up our conversation? So I had two things that I wanted to bring up. Um, one, one of my big issues that I had with the movie is the, the girlfriend's father plot point. Yeah. Useless. Completely useless. I it agree felt with you like it was building towards something and then it was never really realized by the end of the movie because they, they kind of, uh, suggest that he is in the art community just like she is as well as Anthony and that he committed suicide and I thought that this was kind of going to link back to some form of a connection to the mythos. Yeah. Nope. 
It's just a way to get her into the art community is kind of really all that it. It's as if they took like a director's cut edit and they wanted to just excise that whole like subplot from whatever the director's cut is going to be. But they forgot to take out that scene. <laughs> exactly. That, it felt so mismatched. It, yeah. It, it, it was in there for like one line when she was invited to the museum. Like yes. that seems like the whole yeah. point of that whole thing. And, and that one line resonated with me having, you know, being in like uh, a, a field of work where we do a lot of interviews. It's that's kind of a trope that interviewers do is just like bring up this like dark past just to bring it up, you know, um, so that I appreciated that that line was there. But that. Yeah. Other the, than that, like the scene of him actually saying i think he says like i can fly or yeah, something did you like know that, that your did daddy you know could fly or something like yeah. that i was just like like oh this is a really interesting story beat i'm interested to see how this kind of works its way into the larger picture nope yeah. nothing and i that was a little bit disappointing to me um the the other thing that i wanted to say and this is kind of something that we talked about coming out is um we felt like some of the minor characters dialogue felt a little bit disjointed and clunky. I don't know if you felt like that. Um, primarily the uh, Burke is a child felt a little bit clunky. The, um, who was it? The, the curators yeah. I, like mm-hmm. it yeah. felt very strange. And as well as the, the, the other curator later, the interaction between her and that could have been because it was very kind of interviewee that she had this kind of voice on. But I just remember specifically in the first major kill scene, I guess, when the the, cura- the original curator and his girlfriend, I think, are – His intern. His intern who <laughs> yeah. is also um, – he gets attacked and I hear him and he goes – must go faster, must go faster. Yeah. And I was like, why are you making a Jurassic Park reference right now? <laughs> like, And I was like, it just felt like some of the minor characters didn't have as strong of dialogue. And I don't know if that's because they were fodder to the fire, basically. And it kind of took me out in some scenes. Yeah, I remember that scene. Uh, I remember being uh, taken out of the movie there. Yes. You know, like uh, just thinking, oh, he would not react this way like he needs to react more he needs to like he needs to be freaking the heck out and yes. he's not and instead he's saying this goofy stuff so maybe that you chalk that up to that he's been drinking i don't know yes maybe but, his personality is entirely like fabricated and, and yeah. built on but, shaky ground yeah, you would like to believe that in a situation like that though you'd kind of cut that yeah. but i guess not and maybe that could just go into the i know that jordan peele isn't the sole writer of this movie but some of the comedy elements that he has kind mm-hmm. of thrown in there. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like he's balanced it much better in us and get out that I, when it, when it kind of caught me off guard a little bit and, and that was just, it was something that, that I noticed. Um, yeah, I, I guess there was one other thing that I wanted to mention as well, but this is just more of a fun fact that I found out about this movie. Um, actually the original movie um, I was doing some research on it and that Tony Todd had in his contract that every bee sting he got during the movie, he would get an additional thousand dollars. <laughs> um, and he was stung 23 times during the production wow, of this movie dude. for an extra twenty three thousand dollars. And it got me thinking, if you were in this movie, would you allow a bee to sting you for a thousand dollars? Yes, probably. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've never been stung by a bee, though, so I don't know if I'm allergic or not. That's a that's a oh, good point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna have to do one of those 
prick tests yeah, before. Yeah. You know? I, I would yeah. like to believe that that Tony Todd was fully aware of his allergies towards bees. He had to know likely. what he was signing up for yeah. before then. Yeah. But I mean, I guess with some of those older movies, I, you can just throw CG on stuff nowadays. But got to be some some live said, production open stuff up, there. We're pouring them in. <laughs> <laughs> Not the bees. Oh my goodness. How did we get this far into the episode with that? <laughs> Anyways. Uh, all right. Well, I think that about wraps it up, unless I'm stepping on any toes. Uh, I want to thank Jake and Lexi for coming down and joining our new cast. Thank you so much. We thank appreciate you. it. Thank, thank you for, you for having us. Yeah. We're, we're looking forward to probably having you back in the next episode. Uh, and that episode will be uh, the new James Bond movie, No Time to die excited until then everyone we'll see you at the movies this episode was recorded in the studios of kzum 89.3 fm in lincoln nebraska you can find out more about kzum and listen to more episodes of cinema roundtable by visiting kzum.org our theme music was composed by joshua spaulding